1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Hussein Mossin. and today I'll be talking with Michael Yudell, author of Race Unmasked, Race and Biology in the 20th Century. This is a book at the intersection of history of science and race, ethnicity, and migration studies. Dr. Yudell is a public health ethicist, award-winning historian, and professor and vice dean at the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. He is the co-editor of the Columbia University Press series, Race, Inequality, and Health, and the author of several books, including Race Unmasked, which we'll be, talk about, we'll be talking about today, for which he won the Arthur J. Viseltier Award from the American Public Health Association. Michael, welcome to
0: the podcast. Hussein, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me today.
1: Well, I believe you started writing the manuscript during your doctoral studies at Columbia. So before we delving into the details of the book, I was wondering if you can tell us about your intellectual experience in grad school and how did you become interested in the book's
0: topic. Sure. Um, I would love to. And I'll start by saying, you know, before I was in an interdisciplinary PhD program at Columbia, which was a joint program between the School of Public Health and the History Department, um, I was a graduate student in the History Department at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. And it was there that I met David Rosner and Jerry Markowitz, who were teaching a class on the history of public health. And a topic that I chose in that class was to look at the history of the sociobiology debates in the 1970s. And those were vigorous debates about the social nature of biology and genetics and, and what uh, could, uh, as some of the claims of the time were, could genetics tell us about um, complex human social behaviors? And one of the things that stuck out um, at uh, for me was the way in which race factored into those discussions in both an obvious and not obvious way and that most of the sociobiological texts at the time didn't really talk directly about race instead they spoke about xenophobia um, and other and, and racism um, but really avoided engaging the meanings of race uh, directly in the context of those debates That paper uh, ended up growing into my dissertation, and there's a chapter on the on those debates within um, sociobiology in the 1970s in my book Race Unmasked. So that was sort of the kernel of it, and that was in 1995, which was now a really long time ago. Um, I then uh, migrated up to Columbia with David Rosner uh, when he formed this new program in the history and ethics of public health, um, but also had this weird, I guess I could describe it as a side gig that really became my home during graduate school, which was as a graduate student in the laboratory of uh, Rob DeSalle at the American Museum of Natural History. And Rob is a geneticist focusing at that time mostly on uh, Drosophila um, genetics and later genomics, and then expanded into other species as well, including comparative genomics. Um, And he and I, in the mid-90s, came to an agreement that if I was going to write about um, the, the science of race, I would need to dig in more deeply to understand um, this, where scientists were coming from on these issues. And together we studied um, population genetics and evolutionary biology. And for years, I was part of his laboratory uh, as the sort of the odd duck historian. Um, and that's really where the, the book started. And completed it uh, while at Columbia as my dissertation. And here we are today.
1: Well, that's a quite interesting story. Uh, I know Rob Desal is one of the more outspoken geneticists. He's already co-authored Troublesome Science, and he's been involved in those topics. So I'd like to ask you, like, how easy did you find it to find scientists who are willing to be engaged in these topics, or it was just natural to find Rob DeSalle in New York, maybe at a conference or so?
0: So the connection to Rob was actually through um, David Rosner's graduate school advisor, who was uh, the the late Dick Lewington up at Harvard. And Dick and Rob knew each other. And David went to Dick and said, "Uh, who should Michael sit down and do this with in New York? And without hesitation, he said, Rob. And Rob welcomed me into his lab. And um, Sometimes I feel like I never left because Rob and I still collaborate on a whole bunch of stuff. Just earlier this week, um, he and I were on a panel talking about um, the second eugenics congress uh, that was held at the Museum of Natural History in in 1921.
1: Um, Interesting. So um, in the book, in the introduction of the book, uh, you you start by giving us a brief summary about some eugenic ideas that were uh, starting to emerge in the 19th century. And you first tell us that towards the end of that century, there was a shift from ideas uh, and theories about polygyny, social Darwinism, and craniometry. uh, And these were popular uh, practices. And there was this shift to eugenics and genetics, especially at the beginning of the 20th century as well. Uh, And these provided formative language of uh, modern racism. But you also tell us that this was a two-way street. Uh, scientists were involved in conceptualizing a race concept and biology. Uh, They were a product of the scientific culture in which they were trained. But also, uh, as much as they were shaping these concepts, they were affected by the historical, social, and political context in which they were producing knowledge. So uh, speaking of uh, the second direction of the process, what are these historical, social, and political contexts that affected science production during that period, towards
0: the end of 19th, early 20th century? That's a great question. Um, well, I, I, I would turn, I guess, to the work of um, the great sociologist and later civil rights leader W.E.B. Du Bois, whose work uh, late in the 19th and early in the 20th century, um, the book spends a lot of time thinking about, because Du Bois is in many ways um, the individual who is at the, the nexus of, of science and society in the context of uh, how America was going to think about race and racism throughout the 20th century. Um, and Du Bois is, of course, remembered today for his great literary and sociological works. Um, but in the 1890s, fresh out of a Ph.D. from Harvard, he went to Philadelphia to study Philadelphia's black community Um, And there he developed and honed many of the the methods that we still use in public health today to understand and characterize health disparities. Um, But to directly answer your question, I think what Du Bois saw percolating um, at this time, which was a time um, in the 1890s where Jim Crow was ascendant, um, any hopes that uh, the Civil War would have led to uh, a more pronounced and sustained racial reconciliation in this country, Um, hopes for that were were quickly being dashed, um, both politically and culturally with the rise of of segregation across the South and um, less direct but equally powerful segregation across the North. Um, And what Du Bois saw in the 1890s was the way in which science was very quickly being turned to to justify the racism of the times um, and he wrote about this in his 1898 book the philadelphia negro social study which was his book about philadelphia and then began writing about it uh, eight years later um, when he published the health and physique of the negro american as part of his series on african americana that he was publishing out of atlanta university where he began and essentially ended his academic career um, because he would leave academia a few years later. Um, So I think, you know, Du Bois fundamentally understood the pressures that um, broader social forces were putting um, on scientific practice. And, you know, we, we see that with sort of the decline of, I guess, some of the a more marginal, although in the 19th century they weren't necessarily marginal ideas, but ideas like craniometry and ideas like phrenology that um, really start to fade with the rise of first eugenics and then genetics as sort of the quote-unquote, you know, scientific basis for how we were going to, you know, understand um, human traits. So, you know, Du Bois is fighting against this in the 1890s with his, in, in the early part of the 20th century with his with his books, where he is writing directly about race and what we would now call social determinants of health um, in a way where he is deeply concerned about how science is going to be put um, in 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 play to reinforce what he will powerfully write about as the color line, um, which becomes obviously much more pronounced throughout the 20th century.
1: In, in the first chapter, you also told us about Uh, how a generation of eugenicists and here we're back to this first process where scientists were participating actively to redefine the concept uh, of race Uh, so those eugenicists basically redefined both heredity and race and they rigidly associated them back then with each other and uh, you tell us how there was the shift from the assumed racial classifications based on morphology to the other assumed but unseen hereditary differences between uh, races, so I'm wondering um, if you could elaborate about that, and particularly in relation uh, to what you mention to what you mention in the book when you talk about uh, uh, philosopher Kwame Ant- Anthony Appiah, when he talked about semantic difference, where there was a turn where scientists, especially with the rising prestige of science, uh, People like started using certain terms where people became used to them without without really knowing the exact meanings. So in that context, it seemed to me like eugenicists were the ones who were defining heredity. These differences are unseen, and only scientists can try to know or as, like maybe pretend they know what they mean.
0: Absolutely, and I, and I think an important piece of the shift. And and I, I, you know you you're picking up on this notion of. A shift from, you know, physiognomic differences like hair texture that could be measured and, you know, uh, you know skull, uh, cranial capacity and the shape of one's skull with phrenology, to what is essentially, to the layperson and even at that time to most scientists, um, an invisible entity called the gene, um, and that gave, as as I write in the book, race a permanence. Um, where, you know, given that we are now deferring to a small group of experts um, to describe what heredity and race are and that we cannot see what those fundamental differences are, but they are claimed to be fundamental and that they are associated with different races. um, it, It was, you know, again, with the times, as, as, I, as we, we discussed a few moments ago, you know, really a reflection of a, a, a society that needed to justify the social structure that was hardening in that moment. Um, and I think that, you know, science, again, you know, it's that two-way street you, you, you said a few minutes ago, is both a reflection of and is helping to construct um, that, that, that permanence. Uh,
1: speaking of confusion that became associated with the term race, and this would later become a theme of the use of the biological race concept, uh, you tell us in the first two chapters that Francis Galton, uh, who was the leader of eugenics in the UK, and Charles Davenport later on, who became the leader of uh, eugenic currents in the US, uh, and other genesis had used the term race confusingly. Um, Even sometimes in the same text, the same same term race would be used in different ways. Um, Even later on, you tell us how uh, other eugenicists, such as the notoriously racist uh, scientist back then, uh, Lothrop Stoddard, uh, had very little knowledge or engagement with many of the communities in the U.S. and worldwide, while... uh, he and other eugenicists were publishing their works and making their claims. Uh, There seems to be, like, at least to me, several reasons behind those patterns that would let them, one, theorize about communities they don't know about, uh, and two, their kind of insistence on using the term race, even if it was confusing. So why do you think they were doing what they're doing?
0: Doing what they're doing in terms of the inconsistencies of racial terminology, from the late nineteenth century through today,
1: is, yes. Is that, like, yeah. what
0: are the reasons behind those inconsistencies? Uh, I mean, I think the reasons. I mean, you 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 you, you could speculate that. Well, le, le, let me answer it in two ways. I, I think over the course of the twentieth century, um, you know, many scientists, and we'll, I hope we get to talk about Theodosius Dobzhansky in a few minutes. will work in sort of the the Dobzhansky um, driven model of you know, uh, race as a descriptor in evolutionary and population genetics, which is that it is simply a methodological tool by which to organize peoples and populations, and that there's no hierarchy and no judgment and no association of traits with different groups based on, you know, cultural beliefs. And, you know, that I think drives some of the inconsistency because it's just simply a, a tool um, and we'll, we'll we'll get back to that point in in a moment the The earlier scientific racists who are eugenicists and others who are populating um, the biological sciences broadly certainly during the first half of the 20th century, you know I think are are bringing their ideas and judgments to studies about human difference into their own work. Um, Charles Davenport would be the most obvious example of that and his His book, Race Crossing in Jamaica, is sort of, you know, the the ultimate uh, awful example of how non-scientific ideas can be laid upon the studies of different populations to make claims about traits um, that are not consistent with with evidence. So, you know, I think that one piece of it is that, uh, you know, scientists... um, somewhat now, but mostly earlier, um, are really driving their ideologies into their science. And that results in a lot of confusion because racism is, you know, it's a consistent ideology in the way it wants to create hierarchy, but in the way it can be enforced and articulated, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's all based on nonsense. Um, I think what happens later, though, is a little more complicated, though equally damaging, which is this belief that, you know, if race can simply be what many today would call a proxy for human difference and diversity, or what Dobjansky liked to talk about as a methodology for measuring human, diver- human and other species diversity and difference, nothing more and nothing less, um, you know, I think the intention maybe was different, but as we'll talk about, I hope in a bit, as the came to realize the intention was driven by a broader social context. And that is, uh, you know, uh, uh, we'll, we'll just leave it to America for a second, but American ideology about race difference being inseparable from what he believed was simply a way to organize human populations.
1: We certainly will be talking about Dubjansky at length. Uh, he's a very central figure in the book, and certainly in the history of genetics in the 20th century. Uh, but one point that caught my attention in the third chapter, you described uh, Charles Davenport as both a eugenicist, but also a policymaker on the issues of race. Uh, His interventions, among other scientists of the time, to support segregationist and anti-immigration policies are quite clear and even clearly influential sometimes. Uh, This might be a considerably more explicit involvement in policymaking by scientists than that we see today, for example, um, in the U.S. and maybe in other countries. I know you also touched on this point in the epilogue at the very end of the book. So to what extent do you agree on this and why do you think, if that's the case, scientists have maybe a bit retreated from intervening
0: into policymaking? Well, I mean, uh, eugenics stands as a dangerous failure of how, you know, the fusion of ideas about genetics into social policy has over and over again resulted in policies that consistently have done harm um, to different peoples in different populations whether it be sterilization policies whether it be the reinforcement of ideas about racial difference that buttresses racism um, and you know we could we could dive into to multiple examples on that front so I think that certainly scared scientists but I I, I don't know I, I, I think that scientists today remain engaged um, I think you could argue whether or not uh, people are intentionally engaging in policy. The the way in which, for example, we continue to study health disparities primarily through a racialized lens, um, you know, is a policy you know driven um, piece of people's work, um, and that it is you know. It it may be less obvious um, than it was with uh, Charles Davenport or Madison Grant or others, you know, really uh, uh, espousing, you know, very racist ideas that were deeply rooted in eugenics in the in the first part of the 20th century. But um, I don't think scientists have any less power today than they did in those days. I think the intentions are, are different. Um, I, I don't think there's, and I don't think most genetics, it, I don't think genetics is infused with ideas of racism. It's this vestige, this race concept that sticks with us um, and continues to cause problems.
1: Well, uh, speaking of uh, the study of disparities, I usually end the interviews with questions about contemporary issues, but since you just mentioned it, so I'd like to bring it up now. In the epilogue, you tell us about uh, the many scientists and scholars and sociologists who criticized the biological uh, concept of race during the 20th century, some of them describing it as a myth uh, and uh, critically talking about its reductionist and imprecise nature. But also, I got from the epilogue that there is this aspiration of a race-free study in biology, but at the very same time, like you said, given the realities of the time, it seems that race is there to stay, at least in the public health realm, if not in other realms. So uh, what's, what's your take on using race, especially when it comes to public health studies that are related to disparities? Like it's, it's such a dilemma. And where do you stand on that? I'm asking, especially as I know you taught in public health schools and you are a public health expert.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. and in, in, in some ways, that didn't drive the book, but it drove how I thought about the book after it was published. Um, and, you know, we've, we've, we've published a series of papers uh, since the book came out using um, the stories of Dobjansky and Du Bois as anchors to talk about just this point. Um, that you're bringing up, which is what relevance does race have today, whether it be in modern um, genetics and and biological studies, and how do we use it um, in public health studies that are trying to understand the complicated nature of how racism impacts uh, individual and, and population health. So in these two papers that I mentioned um, we talk about, um, taking, uh, well, the title, of the first one is taking race out of human genetics. It was published in science in 2016. Um, and we argue that the NIH should support a, a panel at the National Academies of Science with the National Academies acting as an honest broker to finally find ways to essentially take the biological race concept out of scientific practice, um, We can talk about what's happened with that in a moment, but the flip side is, you know, what do you do with studying health disparities that often fall along racial lines? Um, And our work does not seek to, you know, make claims that race is somehow unreal. We only make a claim that race is not a biologically useful way to understand human diversity, genetic, or otherwise. So, you know, how do you study um, the complexities of health disparities or other, you know, cultural issues that relate to population difference in a society where, you know, the meaning of race is, is as as um, the anthropologist Ashley Montague spoke about it back in the 1940s when he and Dubjansky were having similar discussions to what we're doing now, um, he said, "Race is a trigger word. You utter it, and it has different meanings to, to you know, whoever is is on uh, you know in that discussion." Um, so I think the challenge for social and natural scientists going forward is to think about how to study human populations without replicating uh, racialized and hierarchical notions of human difference and diversity in the context, especially of health disparities, and. Um, what we have proposed is that a National Academy's group of interdisciplinary scholars come together to think through just this question. How do you remove sort of biological race from the equation, but also recognize that, you know, race as a lived experience is an important variable in understanding racism? And I honestly don't have a great answer to that question, because I think this is going to require a real interdisciplinary effort. But I do know that there's a lot of interesting work going on right now where ideas about ancestry as opposed to race are are being used more and more on the biological side and racism as opposed to, you know, a, a race concept, a reductionist race concept um, is more and more being used on the social science and public health side.
1: This is exactly what I was thinking about in a and that in 2016, you co-authored with Professor Dorothy Roberts, with uh, Rob Dussal, and uh, Sarah Tishkov as well in Science, a, a call, a piece that called for taking race out of human genetics. And uh, our interview will appear mainly on the History of Science channel, but it will also appear likely on the Science channel and others. So there's a broad audience. And I'd like to ask you about this distinction between genetics and genomics on one hand and, like you said, public health and studying disparities. Uh, what distinctions could you draw between these, particularly with respect
0: to using uh, race as a like quote unquote variable I think that and we and we write about this um, in in the paper, you know our argument and I'm essentially quoting from the paper phasing out racial terminology in biological sciences would send an important message to scientists and the public alike historical racial categories that are treated as natural and infused with notions of superiority and inferiority have no place in biology the flip side of that is that we acknowledge that using race as a political or social category to study racism and its biological effects cuz you know stress and other you know barriers that are created by racism um, creates real impacts on health at the individual and population level. We argue, although th- th- that is a fraught and challenged approach, it remains necessary. But I-, I think you know one way we can approach these issues and the complexity between genetics and genomics on one side and social science and public health on the other is to is to do more interdisciplinary research, and you know everybody, every institution right now is all about interdisciplinary research. But until the funding mechanisms at the National Institutes of Health and and other grant making agencies, whether they be federal or or not or, or private nonprofits, are changed and actually support that kind of research, we're not going to you know bridge those gaps. We're not going to have um, you know, you know, social scientists and philosophers and historians and, and you know, and others working along public health scientists or geneticists um, who have a lot to offer each other. Um, but there are big gaps that remain in knowledge and methodolo- methodological approaches um, that I think keep us measuring and understanding health disparities in a way that reduce them all too often to, to racialize categories rather than understanding them in the context of broader social, environmental, and other health determinants rather than reducing them to biological determinants. So, you know, maybe that's the answer you were after. And I think it's, you know, if we study the lived experience of people, whether it be um, through the lens of their self-identified group slash race or whether it be through their neighborhoods or zip codes or education level and other social determinants, the data is going to be a lot richer. Um, and you know Du Bois, back in 1896, when he walked the streets of Philadelphia um, collecting data on 10,000 individuals with just a pad and paper in a period of months, implicitly understood this. And he understood that a focus on race was going to do great harm to the populations that he cared deeply about. Um, and that if, that's, if that remains the only focus, we are gonna go round and round on this health disparities wheel um, and not improve the lives of you know, the people and the patients who I think the NIH and everybody who's funded by the NIH so desperately wants to improve. Um, but we really need to rethink how we study those populations um, in, in, in both the context of population identifiers and broader health determinants if we're going to really make some fundamental change here.
1: You speak at length in Chapter 6 about uh, Du Bois and how visionary he was from the very early 1900s and how he, like you said, predicted many of the debates that would basically uh, be very popular about the race concept during the 20th century. Um, In the chapters before, 4 and 5 in particular, you tell us how towards the late 1920s, a divide started to take place uh, between two main paradigms of thinking, the typological versus the populationist one. And the populationist one is the one that later got more developed by Dobzhansky and other geneticists. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about this divide and what does typological versus populationist thinking mean? That's great.
0: So uh, I'll, I'll just... I'll introduce it with Du Bois as you did because Du Bois saw this coming, and it was really before genetics forms as a field, right? He's working in the 1890s and he's seeing anthropologists and eugenicists and others make claims about this permanence of difference and mapping that permanence onto um, heredity, um, and later in the in the beginning in the in the 1920s and through the 1930s with you know, uh, scientists like Theodosius um L.C. Dunn, um, both of them working at Columbia, and then Ashley Montague, whose career takes him um, to a number of places. I believe he's uh, at Rutgers at this time. He may end up there later. I'm not, I, I don't exactly recall. But they are pushing um, the fields of, you know, evolutionary biology and population genetics broadly defined away from, you know, these eugenic ideas, which are based on, um, you know, type or typological, uh, you know, uh, type or typology, as you just mentioned. And type is essentially, you know, reducing uh, difference um, to, to different groups, different racial groups. And there was a belief that Groups had you know very similar traits you know within uh, a particular group and gaps in differences between groups. and those, those traits, I'm sorry, those groups mapped largely on to you know to, to continental racial groups as we would understand them today and, and as they were described back then. Um, but what Dobzhansky's project is deeply engaged in, is sort of detypologic or or, or taking typology out of, um, you know, evolutionary thinking and, and population genetics thinking. Because what he and others are starting to see in the 1920s and 1930s is that this belief that um, there was a lot of genetic um, homogeneity Within groups that they would identify as racial, whether those be races of Drosophila and ladybug beetles, like um, Dobzhansky studied, or a wide variety of other species that were under study at the time, that there was far more genetic diversity within those groups. Um, and Dobzhansky, over time, and others came to realize that the same thing applied to human beings, although. In the 1930s, he's really not writing directly about that. He's, he writes about that a little bit later, and then struggles throughout that thr- struggles with this issue throughout the arc of his career. But it's this idea that there's much more genetic heterogeneity, um, you know, within um, species and within subpopulations or races, as they would have been called, um, that really sets he and others into a very different trajectory away from these very crass eugenic ideas about differences between groups. And that begins in earnest um, in the 1930s. Dobzhansky's great book, Genetics and the Origin of Species, um, is, is pushing, that, pushing that forward.
1: So in the chapter afterwards, chapter seven, you exactly touch on Dobzhansky and Elsie Dunn's work and their long collaboration that culminated eventually in their book in 1946, Race, Heredity, and Society. So in the book, they introduced populationist uh, frameworks further, they rejected eugenics further, but at the same time, they insisted on the use of the race concept as a valid one, like you said. So um, what was their argument for insisting on race, and how do you criticize what they did in the book?
0: So... You know, Dubzhansky and Dunn were very interesting characters. And, you know, we talk about the political nature of scientists. Both were deeply engaged in, in not just science, but more broadly in society. Um, Dubzhansky was a, a Russian who came to the, the Morgan Genetics Lab at Columbia in the late 1920s. Um, and while he was studying uh, Vladimir Lenin, uh, who led the Soviet Union at the time died. Joseph Stalin takes over the mood in the country, especially the thinking about, um, science, particularly genetics takes a wild turn and, you know, uh, it becomes not safe, you know, both intellectually and later physically for Dobjansky to go home. And he, um, over time will become an American citizen and, uh, you know, live out his days in the U.S. Dunn, uh, and those events, I would say, politicize him in 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 very intense ways because he is aware of the power of ideology um, and the way that can you know really uh, you know upend um, both scientific and social ideas and the structure of of and the structures of societies. Dunn is also deeply engaged in political issues. <coughs> excuse me, and he along with many scientists. Are engaging in uh, Jewish refugee crisis issues, the rise of Nazism in in Germany, and as it spreads through Western Europe. Um, Dunn also has a, a son who has a disability, and that is, I think, also shaping his thinking about difference. And the two of them, as as you say, in the in the forties, write this book about this popular book about race, um, where they pushback against eugenic ideas, but really try to elevate populationist thinking, which tries to take the, the racism out of the race concept, as, 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 as I think both of them would have thought about it. But they really stick to this idea that the race concept is meaningful. And they're doing it, I think, rather naively, um, and doing it in a way that um, in their mind reflects the best of scientific practice that look this is this is just a way we organize you know peoples and populations whether it be in Drosophila ladybug beetles or human beings it doesn't have social meaning um, and like I said earlier Ashley Montague who's you know a, a well-known anthropologist at the time um, and for a long time after that as well uh, you know will Push back against this in private correspondence with Dobzhansky, and I write about that in the book. And they have this argument in the in the forties, um, and it goes nowhere for Dobzhansky. He sees himself in some weird way as, you know, the the I don't want to say call him the keeper of of the race concept, but the keeper of the lexicon of biology, I guess, as as he thought about it. Um, and you know, his training as both a naturalist and as a geneticist, I think, you know, makes language so important to him in the precision of language. So I think that's where he gets stuck. Um, But what will happen in the coming decades, uh, especially beginning in the late 1950s, and this goes back to a point we were making earlier about um, the way in which there's this two-way street between, you know, social forces and scientific ideas in in the late 1950s with the rise of the civil rights movement, I think Dubjansky has this awakening and he starts to understand the ways in which race can reinforce racism, whether it ideas about race can reinforce racism, whether it be within scientific practice or whether it be as a social idea. And he starts seeing his own ideas and the ideas of colleagues um, in the field in his, from his perspective, misused and used in support of anti-civil rights and racist notions of difference, um, and eventually he will move away from the concept. But I want to, you know, stop there and, and 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 let you jump in and happy to, f- to finish that arc if you'd like me
1: to. I actually was going to mention this is a very common thread that I've noticed that criticism against the biological race concept throughout those decades have been two-sided. On one side, it was about this, quote-unquote, scientific method. It's methodology, data collection, hypotheses, interpretation, and whatnot. And then there's the other part, which had to do with science communication and the misuse of those scientific concepts, which brings us, like you said, to Ashley uh, Monoyou. So by the end of the seventh chapter, uh, and in other chapters, you tell us about uh, Monayu and how he suggested the use of ethnic groups rather than race, because he suggested they were more dynamic terms, they're non-committal, and they might imply the cultural notions of ethnicity back then, uh, rather than uh, the baggage of the race concept that we talked about. Uh, Monayu became a very popular scholar in this field, and he led even the UNESCO First Committee on the issues of race that issued the first statement on the topic in 1950. But what happened afterwards is that the first statement received mixed reviews or uh, reactions, but there was pressure that led the UNESCO to form another committee shortly after and to issue another statement. Uh, What's the story of those uh, two statements? And what do you think the very the very notion of having
0: another statement under pressure means during those times? That's a, that's a great, that's a great question. And, um, you know, this is for, for me, um, you know, Montague, I, I, I is such a, an interesting character and, you know, what, what I really appreciated in spending, you know, essentially years in his perf- personal papers was the arc of his growth as a scientist and as a human being. Um, and how he really struggled with complex issues at the forefront of science in the 20th century. Um, Montague is an equally interesting character who um, sees what's coming uh, you know, as early as the late 1930s with the way in which race is really damaging scientific thinking um, and reinforcing broader social mores about, uh, about human diversity. Um, in the context of racism, of course. and you know the that correspondence that I mentioned a few minutes ago between the two of them is really, you know, uh, Montague as the visionary, you, we need to move away from this this concept um, and Dobzjansky as sort of the keeper of this of the new status quo. Um, and when in uh, you know when he's invited by UNESCO, um, to write uh, what is the first statement on race, um beginning in nineteen in late nineteen forty nine, uh, you know, that statement is fairly radical. It's very radical for the time. um, and essentially is the, you know, it's echoing what Du Bois would have said you know, fifty something years earlier, but without the kind of audience that um, Montague now has. Um, and brings together a, you know, a multicultural and multidisciplinary group to make some important recommendations um, that are not that different than recommendations that Dorothy, Sarah, Rob and I recently made in science or, or others have been making since Montague. And there, there are a whole lot of others who've, who've been in this terrain for, for really the last century. Um, But what happens is that because the group is more anthropological leaning um, and sociological leaning, the geneticists are like, oh, not enough uh, of our science in there. Um, And there'll be a lot of pushback. And a second statement comes out that really takes the air out of what Montague um, and others had tried to do. Um, And, you know, it was it it was what could have been an inflection moment for science, which turned out to be, you know, more of the status quo. um, And that was unfortunate.
1: It was unfortunate indeed. In the 10th chapter, uh, you write about the controversy that surrounded sociobiology in capital S because it was the title of uh, the book published by Edward uh, Wilson in 1975. Um, In the book, Wilson tried to associate the behavior of species, including humans, with evolutionary synthesis, which was the intersection or was able to combine notions of Darwinian natural selection and Mendelian genetics. Um, And in the book, Wilson suggested that there might be genes responsible for traits or what are referred to as traits in human behavior. And he mentioned many of those traits, including, for example, xenophobia and conformity. Uh, So how critical was the reception of Wilson's book back then? And how did he ended up responding to many of his critics?
0: You know, Wilson is writing that book at an interesting time. It's sort of at the, the tail end of the civil rights era and other movements for social justice that you know, hit a high point, you know, from the mid to late 1960s. Um, It's sort of, you know, deeply uh, enmeshed, uh, the the times are deeply enmeshed in white backlash from those movements as well, and, you know, from, I guess, the status quo trying to reassert itself, and intentionally or not, and and I don't think it was intentionally, Wilson and sociobiology are wading into those broader social arguments about um, racism, about a, a woman's place at the table, about diversity. Um, and by bringing a genetic argument into it, or a social sociobiological argument into this terrain, the backlash, um, especially from the academic scientific left, is brutal. Um, And Wilson, uh, who is at Harvard in, I I think he and Dick Lewinton, who becomes his uh, um, biggest thorn, um, are on different floors of, I think it's the MCC building at Harvard, but I don't remember 100%. They had been genial colleagues and stopped talking to each other. Um, and you know, this debate ensues about the role of, um, you know, what role social ideas have in human biological sciences. And because many of the claims of sociobiology were again, mirroring these broader social arguments, things exploded. There are these, you know, long, um, and angry, uh, pieces in different journals and magazines, um, and what is what probably would have been at a different time a largely academic debate spills over um, more broadly into the pages of the New York Times and, and other more popular media. So in the last
1: chapter, uh, you briefly touched on the last decade or so of the 20th century, and, uh, and partly on what we call now the age of personalized medicine. There was part of the chapter uh, that's focused on this, and I know we already discussed that and discussed the paper that you published with professors Roberts, uh, Professor Roberts, Professor Dosal, and Professor Tishkov. Uh, but I know that you talk about uh, the use of race as a proxy sometimes in the age of personalized medicine, because practically, at least for now, it's not uh, possible to sequence every single genome at ease. And at the very same time, you criticize this practice and you think it might contradict a tenet of evolutionary synthesis and how it rejected typological thinking. So this might be advertently or inadvertently reifying typological
0: thinking. Uh, What do you mean by that? So we're like in this funny moment where, you know, I think most biologists, but not all, Um, are not coming at the study of human population differences from, you know, a a typological or, you know, even more extreme racist perspective. Um, But because, again, you know, we've got this very powerful technology that is genomics, um, and we can look at, you know, genes much more quickly and understand you know what individuals' susceptibilities are to to risks, whether they be environmental risks or risks to adverse drug reactions or even risks for certain you know illnesses. Um, we still use pro- uh, race as a proxy at the population level to make best guesses about you know this or that trait being associated with with a particular with a particular group, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll argue against this practice in two ways. One, you know, human populations are very dynamic and um, very diverse. Whether we, you know, go back to Dobzhansky's claims in the 1930s, or excuse me, more recent claims or more recent science about you know the the heterogeneity um within what we tend to think of as 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 human races that making predictions at the population level for an individual are inevitably gonna leave some people out so let's say you know there's a trait that runs you know high in a particular group that relates to drug metabolism and you know in that group 80% of individuals are, um, let's say, fast metabolizers of a particular drug. So that the physician needs to take that into consideration with dosing um, or even using a particular drug. Um, but what if you're in that other 20% and the proxy is a racial proxy uh, and your treatment is, is not ideal and potentially dangerous because an assumption was made by a clinician based on the color of your skin? Or even, you know, with a with a more, you know, uh, uh, I, I would say obvious example to the general public, you know, think about sickle cell disease, which is thought of as a African or African-American disease. But we know, of course, that sickle cell trait appears in other populations. And if, you know, a uh, individual whose ancestry is not directly tied to uh, West and Central Africa shows up in an ER suffering from symptoms of uh of sickle cell, their, their pain may at least be initially ignored until somebody figures it out. So there, there are ways in which um, the, 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 such an idea can work against individuals within populations. Um, the other thing that I would say is that this idea of race as a proxy um, presents challenges because of the way in which a race is you know, the primary, over and over again, the primary variable through which we understand health and health differences in this country. And B, um, it, again, is a concept that is infused with notions of um, human hierarchy um, and superiority and inferiority that play back into reinforcing um, the ideas that we are trying to fight against.
1: Um- I know we've already held you up for a significant amount of time. So, before I ask you about your current and future projects, there's a very interesting point in the book uh, that, especially when it talked about how, for example, typological thinking and populationist thinking uh, were sometimes present in the theories or publications of sometimes the same scientists. So as with every transition from one type of thinking to another, it wasn't a clean cut, absolute and immediate transition. So you give examples, including Fisher, but many others, where they had some sympathies with eugenics and they embraced some of the ideas. But at the very same time, they developed quantitative methods that touched on the populationist thinking. So if you could tell us
0: about that. So, I mean, I, I guess I'll give a more... I mean, I, th- I think we've been talking about this this theme in, in some ways throughout our discussion, which is, you know, this way in which, you know, scientists today and yesterday um, are still stuck in this transition. They're still stuck in what uh, I call in the book Dobjansky's Paradox, which is this idea that, um, you know, race on the one hand Uh, is a poor proxy for understanding human um, genetic diversity and the complexities of human populations. But on the other hand, it is the best proxy we have, so we're going to use it. So you see whether, you know, it be some of the earlier scientists who were beginning that transition away from eugenic and typological thought to more populationist thinking, to scientists today who continue to develop cutting-edge methodologies to understand, um, human health, but continue to rely on, you know, this simplistic and, and, and outdated concept that again, I think, you know, doesn't bring a whole lot to the table in the context of, of our, our, our biology and human heredity.
1: Um, before, uh, I wrap up the episode, I'd like to ask you about your
0: current and future work. So what are you working on? Great. Um, well, thanks for asking that. I think, you know, they're, they're, I, I've recently moved from Philadelphia to, to Phoenix to become the vice dean at the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University, which is a big job. And it's a little intimidating sometimes, um, helping to manage a college of hundreds of faculty and thousands of students, which is a big scale change from where I was. So that's taken up a big chunk of my time. But, um, and it, it's great to be here at, at, at this amazing institution. But Academically, my research goes on and focused in two areas right now, um, continuing to think about how to, to, to you know, push the boundaries in getting the NIH and other, you know, funders of science to, to really rethink how we study human populations and human population differences and health disparities. And, um, you know, we'll continue to push the NIH on that front. We had a paper Um, back in September of 20, which was a follow-up to our initial paper in science. This paper again appeared in science, where we uh, asked the NIH to um, again approach the national, work with the National National Academies of Science to um, develop a committee to make recommendations to the field about the use of race in natural and social scientific research, and also made recommendations, particularly in the wake of some of the some of the, the science that was being published making claims for biological differences driving COVID disparities, which of course, um, you know, uh, unsurprisingly, I guess, fell along racial lines early in the pandemic, even though we know that social and structural issues were causing and continue to cause uh, many of the differences in, in COVID outcomes. Um, and uh, we thus pushed the, the, the NIH to do some education around racism and structural racism within um, uh, the within the NIH and science more broadly, directly addressing Francis Collins, asking him to do that, um, and also to continue to, to do important work that they have been deeply engaged in around increasing um, the diversity of scientists themselves um, funded uh, extramurally but also intramurally at NIH. Those two points around uh, thinking about racism and thinking about expanding uh the the uh the hiring of diverse scientists at nih have both been part of the recently released unite initiative at nih um but nih still sort of dances around um engaging more deeply on rethinking how it should collect data and i you know we know that nih has been engaged in its own internal discussions about how to include social and other non-biological determinants of health in data collection that could potentially um, complement the inclusion enrollment form, which all NIH scientists fill out that is you know, uh, asking what race and ethnicity your, your research subjects that you're gonna recruit are gonna belong to. Um, so hopefully we continue to push, others are pushing on this, um, hopefully there's some change on the horizon on that front, but it really requires a lot of policy engagement by um, an interdisciplinary group of scientists to, to continue to, 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 to make some change on that front. And then my other area of research is that I'm writing a book on the history of autism um, and, you know, about uh, two to three years out from completing that book, I'm writing it with um, Dr. Emer Lucy, who uh, is a, a great young historian of science who just finished her PhD at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. So um, that's what's on my plate right now. And uh, really grateful to be able to talk about it with you.
1: Well, it seems certainly like a full plate. Thanks for uh, your time being with us and for the work you do. Uh, That was a great conversation.
0: Thank you, Hussein. This was uh, a, a great time to chat with you, um, you know, and look forward to continuing the discussion at some point. Thanks to you and to our
1: listeners. Until next episode.